A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Maddie. how are you, buddy? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hello, listeners. Uh, sorry, this has taken a little bit, uh, a little bit long to, uh, to record and send out to you because our poor co-host, Dr. Barton, was a little bit sick, weren't you? I had a rough summer. What happened? In, in terms of sickness. Well, without boring the listeners... Um, Pre-Christmas, I had. If we a he- worried about boring the listeners, we would stop doing a podcast. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Pre-Christmas, I had a head cold, which I thought was COVID. Then I did a number of rat tests and a PCR came back negative. Head cold disappeared, but then I got like a post-viral rash, which became really annoying. Oh, nice, itchy, very itchy. Um, and then it worsened, so I went back to the, back to the doctor. My my IgE levels were like three thousand. And what should they be? Uh, under 100. Okay. So obviously there was an allergic something going on. And so the doctor gave me prednisone, <clears throat> five days, which I wasn't overly happy with, but what can you do? Uh, and then I got COVID. Oh, so you did get <laughs> yeah, yeah. the old, what they call the spicy cough. Did you get a cough? No, not really. It was very yeah. mild. Um, you are triple dosed, right? Triple dosed. I had a friend visiting from Sydney. We're in Queensland. There you go. And then they came to visit. I let my guard down. Uh, and Open mouth kissing. So you got to stop open mouth kissing visitors. Doesn't help. Doesn't no, help. it doesn't help. It's good hospitality. <laughs> and uh, your family, your wife, your bub? Well, then um, I got the positive test, COVID yeah. test, and then I uh, isolated. Um, oh. Interestingly, where we are now. Oh, that's good to hear. So last week you were isolating in the granny flat, shedding your virus in the granny flat that we're uh, recording in. We're at Matt's house at the moment, so if you can hear, because the, the university's closed, yeah, we uh, can't go to work, so we can't do it there. So uh, 
we're doing it here. But you can hear but, uh, some some birds and it's quite a windy day, so you might be able to hear a breeze. So if you do hear some background noise, it's because we're in Matt's granny flat. I'm trying to ventilate it. Do Americans use the term granny flat? I reckon they would. Let us know. It listeners. seems like a, an American term. A granny flat? Yeah. yeah otherwise, it's called a nana house. <laughs> <laughs> um so you're ventilating it now while I'm here. Thank yeah. you for that. Okay, so I maybe did a deep clean for you. Oh, good. I, I was s- going to say, so sterilized time, every I'm not surface. Have COVID. Oh, good, mm. good. So you didn't just spit, spit and wipe with your shirt. I did make you coffee though. Oh, that's true. But anyway, oh. I'm negative at the moment. Good to hear for COVID. Yeah. And I'm least. usually, I'm usually a positive guy. Um, it's usually the other Which way. Which actually around, works out. A good leading because today we're talking about positive and negative things. Oh, very good. Um, yes. So today we are talking about electrolytes and ions. And we're going to go through sodium and potassium and chloride and calcium and their roles in the body. Yeah. What they are and so forth. So we might as well just jump into it and get started. And I think the best way to get started, and I think this is how I start every podcast, is by going, I think the best way to start yeah. this podcast is by talking about the universe. Start big, Matt. Start big. Go big or big go bang. Home. Well, we could start at the Big Bang. And when the Big Bang did occur, hydrogen and helium was produced. These are the first two elements on the periodic table. Do you remember sitting in high school chemistry, maybe grade 10, and you see that big poster on the wall? Had all the I was always in detention. Were you? Mm. Oh, you would have been this bad boy, huh? This naughty bad boy. I was cool kid. You know, doing flamethrowing in the Bunsen burners. Wow. You're no, farting on the things. Bunsen burners, <laughs> smoking in the toilets. All that stuff. Wow. That stuff. Horrible. Anyway, while I was in chemistry paying attention, uh, I remember this big poster on the wall and the poster had all these symbols on it and that is the periodic table containing 118. I don't know if it had 118 back then, which is, this is 25 years ago. 118 elements. Is that natural? Or that oh, naturally yeah, thank occurring? You. Thank you for noticing. Yeah, I just, I just train and... And eat and it's oh the the elements. Yeah. Um, n- uh, yes and no. Okay. So yes, in the sense that they're not man-made. You can't really man-make a, an element, but you can produce them in a lab. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I thought the, I some thought of them the, have a, some of them survive for like a fraction of a second. So uh, they've measured okay. a lot of the radioactive ones. I thought the ones at the the bottom end of the table were kind of. Man created. Yeah, they are. In, in the sense that in the lab, they've created them through... But obviously, they can be produced in nature through various types of oh, reactions. Okay. They okay. just aren't really um, because you need very specific conditions and they don't last for very long. Yeah, okay. Like fractions of a second. Right. So anyway, there's 118 of these elements on this table mm-hmm. and they are the ingredients to make the whole universe, right? right? Yep. You, me, everything on this planet, everything outside this planet. But if you want to make a human being, you don't need 118 elements. You only need 59 elements to make a human being from scratch, right? The ingredients. So half. Yeah. But more specifically, you only need really four to make 90 to 95% of your body mass, right? How much do you weigh? I weigh 70 kilograms. Well, let's use you because that seems to be the the weight that... Of an average human male? Yeah. There we yeah. go. So, so you're above average, I'd say. <laughs> Sorry to hear. So I'm a 70 kilogram male. Mm-hmm. To make up around about 93% of that 70 kilos, I only need four elements, four ingredients from wow. that periodic table, which Pretty is simple. oxygen, carbon, 
hydrogen and nitrogen. Okay. Now, two of them, oxygen and hydrogen, make up uh, make up uh, around about sixty odds to seventy percent of my body mass. So they join together as a molecule. They well, they they do once they're in the body. Okay. But oxygen makes up around about. 60% of my mass and hydrogen makes up around about 10% of my mass and yours. Uh, th- and they're both gases. They're both two of the lightest elements there is, yet they make up 60 to 70% of my body weight, which is interesting, but it's because they snap together, like you said, yep. and they form water, water, mm. right? H2O. So two hydrogen, one oxygen come together, form water. So that's so, why so in 60%. your case, 40 liters of water. Yeah, so if 60% of my body is going to be oxygen and hydrogen snapped together and I'm 70 kilos in there, yeah, 40 litres of this water is in my body and this 40 litres of water is distributed in different compartments in different ways. Right. So where is this water sitting? Well, um, if we're now just talking about the biology of you rather than the chemistry of you, Sure. We'll go back to the chemistry because that's, that's biochemistry. Let's say biochemistry. Let's merge the two together, Matt, like no one's ever done before. Uh, I'm just going to stick with biology for a second. <laughs> um, from biologically speaking, you're made up of trillions and trillions of cells. Yes. Do we have a number? 30 trillion-ish. Okay. okay well, give or take a couple of trillion. So each one of those cells is a unit and inside that, they're microscopic. You can't see them. Oh, thanks. I mean, some you can. Really? I mean... Potentially. <laughs> if it was out isolated on its own, you might be able to see... Isn't oocyte the largest the cell? One, yeah. And you can... It's like the uh, full stop on a page? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so a cell, 30 trillion, the inside of them is basically just filled with water, right. which they'd call cytoplasm. Mm-hmm. But if you were to then add all those 30 trillion cells together and... Add all the volume of cytoplasm together of water, right? becomes quite a lot, and that ends up being uh, two thirds of that volume that you spoke of. So around about what twenty eight liters of that yeah, forty about, liters, about twenty five liters. Wow. Yeah. So that would be called what would you call that fluid? Intracellular, yeah, because exactly. it's in the cells. Yep. Exactly. Right, easy. So then, the other water is outside the cells. Yeah, the one third. One third. Know, I would have thought the opposite, right? You would yeah, think you would that think. most of the water sits outside the cells, but two thirds sit in the cells, one third sits outside the cells. Yep. And this is what extracellular fluid. Extracellular. But we can further subdivide that because remember, um, what determines where a cell ends? What's the the barrier? Uh, the cell membrane. Yeah. So the cell membrane. What do we know about the cell membrane? It's semi permeable. Permeable, which means uh, it dictates what can go in and out. So in the case of separating intracellular and extracellular, it's a, a barrier that will end up determining what can move in between those two spaces. But when we look at the extracellular space, th- there is two compartments to this. There is the interstitial, which is just all the fluid around the cells. Yeah, all the, all the space between the cells and around the cells, what but, bathes the cells. But then there's also the volume of fluid in your vascular so all your blood vessels. Right. Okay. So we call that the intravascular space. But that's still part or of your... Or plasma. Or plasma. So that's still part of the extracellular fluid. Right. But it's in blood vessels. Okay. But the one thing about blood vessels going into the interstitial space, there's big enough holes in the blood vessels 
to basically let all that plasma fluid go. Does that make sense? So it's a fairly freely flowing movement between the intravascular and the interstitial space. So even though it's subcategorized, the extracellular space is subcategorized between intravascular and interstitial, most of the stuff in the plasma, all this fluid, this watery stuff, can just move in and out. Hence why they're both called extracellular. Yeah. All right. But that same freely movement doesn't happen between the extracellular and the intracellular because we have cell membranes. All right. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to yeah, that. Yeah, good point. But that's very important because that will dictate a number of things. We'll talk about like tonicity, mm. osmolarity, osmotic gradients. Yeah. Even just water balance and water, water yeah, fluid. Which becomes exchange. very important when so, we start to talk about electrolytes. So I'm 70 kilos. I've got 40 litres of water, around about 28, 25, 28 litres are inside the cells and the remaining of 14 litres is outside yep. the cells in the bloodstream and swimming between the cells and bathing the cells. Yeah. Now, this water that I'm made up of being hydrogen and oxygen, as water, it actually has a really interesting property which is why it's so important for life. There is not one bit of life in existence that doesn't have at least some water in it. You must have water for life. You can go to the far reaches of this earth, this planet, and even the smallest... Where's the far micro- reaches of this? Well, we're in Australia, so let's just say the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so even in the United States, every organism... Has water. That has water, right? Has water. Um, most of that predominantly probably in beer uh, here in Australia. Yeah, I think Australian drink. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway... You need water. Mm. And the reason why, or at least one of the reasons, is because it has a really interesting structure associated with it. So when the two hydrogen... At least in Australia, it's shaped like a boomerang. Good point. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. One oxygen in the middle, two hydrogen either side with a... H2O. H2O. Mm. Some high quality H2O. The oxygen has a slight negative charge and the hydrogen has a slight positive charge. This is important because that means anything else that's floating in that fluid, floating in that water. What what are they called? Well, if it is in that water and it is binding to the positive or negative charges of that water, it's called a solute. Okay. And the water is a solvent. Yep. So anything that that water can play around with because of those charges, Okay. the water is a solvent and what's in the water is a solute. Now... So if I, it doesn't I, have I, a charge, I, it's not going to mix in with the water. That's yeah, the thing. Okay. So, so it precipitates. You can see it. Okay, right, right. right? So and dissolving. So right. if a substance was to dissolve in this solvent, being water, it would be considered a solute. Yes. Okay. That's right. So now we're going down the path of the, the focus of the day. Yes. So I said you need 59 elements to make a human. I said only four makes up 93%. The rest of those 59 elements, you get in your food and drink, right? Now, some of them, a subset of them, which are what we call minerals and essential minerals, are important for our existence. And a lot of them exist in the world bound together as a solid. Okay. Often we term it a salt. Right. Now, the medical term for a salt is an electrolyte. And so when you ingest a salt, i.e. an electrolyte, they're usually snapped together regardless of okay, what they so are. Okay, so give us the most common salt that we're probably going to So think ingest. of table salt, right? Okay, what's Sodium that? and chloride. Sodium chloride. N-A-C-L. So what you're saying, 
in the form of salt when you're about to put in your food. Yeah. It's a salt. Yeah. It's a solid, it's, it's a solid lattice, crystalline structure. It goes into your food, you swallow it, and then once it gets once it meets water, the yes. solvent, it will then dissociate mm-hmm. into ions. Into so it's it'll break components. apart. Yeah. So the sodium and chloride will pull themselves apart because of the water yep. and the sodium has a positive charge and the chloride has a negative charge. And, and now, is that an electrolyte? Well, an electrolyte is the salt. Oh, okay. They're now the ions. Okay. They're the individual ions that make up an electrolyte. Okay, all right. Sometimes though, in the literature, they just refer to them as electrolytes. Yeah. But okay. in actual fact, they're ions. Okay. And some, I- well, the definition of an ion is an atom or element that has a positive charge. or negative charge yeah. associated okay. with it. Okay. And, and that can include sodium and chloride and calcium and magnesium uh, and, and so phosphate is it fair to and say, hydrogen. So you spoke about salt, but you could also have acid and bases that would also do the same? Yeah, well, they're salts. They're so- oh, are they? Okay. Yep. Any, right. Anything that has an ionic bond associated with it that can disassociate into their relevant ions in a solvent is a salt. So that would be like hydrogen chloride. That's a which salt. A, which we... Would say it's an acid, but that's a, you're saying that's a salt. Yep. And then you have yeah, a subset of salts yeah. are acids. Okay. And then you can have a base like sodium uh, bicarbonate. Well, y- yes. The thing is that an acid is actually made up of a base, right? What they call the conjugate base. Yeah. So, um, when you put an acid or a uh, an acid which is a, a subcategory of an electrolyte into a solvent, it will split apart releasing its hydrogen ion because that's the definition of an acid. It's a donor. Yeah, it donates a hydrogen ion and then it's left with its conjugate base. And that base is present within that solution, which will be an ion. The base will be an ion, right? Just one final thing to say here. Uh, Actually, you probably have a whole lot of things. I've got a lot more to say, but go on. But just to kind of uh, complete the definition of an electrolyte, I think it's also important to say that these solutes within the solution then can conduct electrical current. Yes. Hence the term electrolyte. Yeah. But it, but it would also be important to say, correct me again if I'm wrong here, but uh, if you're saying that electrolyte dissociates in water, then you have other substances that wouldn't, like mm-hmm. glucose. So that doesn't break into parts when you put it into water, but it could be still classified as a solute. Correct? Yeah. And that part plays a a role in, so when we talk about osmolarity and tonicity and osmotic gradients, even though glucose, sugar, doesn't uh, dissociate and change form in water, it still plays a role in um, the way that water will move. Yes, and so the way you should think about this is when you put a salt Let's say you ingest a salt. You ingest table salt, right, as that sodium chloride. There's no charge associated with it. There's no charge associated with anything that has an ionic bond in nature, right? And they're salts because they use the positive usually shares with the negative. And then what this simply means is this. If something has a negative charge like chloride, it has an ex- extra electron. If something is positive, like sodium, it's lost an electron. Mm. Therefore, the relationship between sodium and chloride is perfect. Mm. The sodium gives its electron to chloride, and chloride takes the electron from sodium, and they come together, and therefore they're now neutral because they're all happy with the transaction. That's what they want to do, right? So when you ingest that, and it's mixed in with the solvent of the water, I told you water has that charge. Mm. Slight negative from the oxygen, slight positive from the hydrogen. The positive sodium 
or the sodium within the sodium chloride goes, oh, I'd rather engage with that negative oxygen than with the chloride. And so pulls away and, and has a relationship with that negative oxygen. Yeah. And the negative chloride goes, eh, I'd rather share that hydrogen end. negative electron from the oxygen. Uh, sorry, I'd rather share that positivity from the hydrogen and binds with that. And that's what, why water is known as a solvent. This relationship, for example, in which sodium comes together with that water and chloride comes together, together with that water is really important because that means if I were to take one of those sodium ions that's bound to the water and drag it somewhere, it's taking water with it. Yeah. Same goes with chloride. Because they're now snapped together with that. Now, we think that they're just dissolved or mixed in with the water and they're free-floating. That's how we talk about in textbooks. Oh, you've got free sodium in the extracellular fluid. It's not free, it's bound to water. And this is a super important point because wherever sodium goes and wherever chloride goes, water follows. And that is what we call osmotically active. So when we hear the term osmosis, you know, the, the high school definition of osmosis is the movement of water through a semi-permeable membrane from an area of high water concentration to an area of low water concentration, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, in actual fact, it's water being pulled by certain solutes, solutes. predominantly sodium and, and chloride. And this is important because you ingest that salt, the first place it goes to is going to be the bloodstream, where there's extracellular fluid and mostly water, and that's where it first becomes ions as positive sodium negative chloride, you already told us that whatever's in the blood is freely exchangeable with the interstitial fluid Mm -hmm. outside the blood. Mm -hmm. So that positive sodium negative chloride moves out into the interstitial area and floats around. But you then said that this fluid's bathing the cells, but the cells have a different type of membrane that's semi-permeable and lets some things in and other things it doesn't let in. Right. So what does or doesn't it let in here? In, in the reference of what we're talking about or yeah. just generally? Yeah. Generally, what, what do cell membranes let in and not let in? Is uh, there like it, something that... Small things, so like the gases that you spoke about, so oxygen and carbon dioxide can It move. does let those things yep, in. Yep. They can move through. Because remember the cell membrane is a fat, or well, a lot of it is fat, Yep. The, the inner part of it, it's a bilayer, the inner part, it's lipid, um, the outside is, is phosphate heads. Um, so if a substance was lipid soluble, it would have the capacity to move through the membrane. So, you know, uh, cholesterol or certain um, steroid hormones can move through. But if it's polar or large uh, or charged, it can't, it will bounce off. Yeah. Can I just make a point going back a little bit when you were talking about glucose as a solute? So glucose is a solute because it has all those oxygens, the negative charges. So that's why it's a solute. It's it's not that it doesn't have a charge. It does have a charge. Hence why it's a solute because it attracts water. So again, it, it can pull water towards it. Because I was just meaning it doesn't break apart like the salt does. That's what I was meaning. Uh, well, it, it, it sort of does because you can have glucose as a larger molecule snapped together. And obviously, you have enzymes that break glucose apart. So glucose can is a carbohydrate. Glucose comes as a carbohydrate train. Chain, yeah, but right? that's not ca- that's not glucose. Then I'm not talking about carbohydrate. I'm just talking about glucose in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't split apart, but no. it still has a charge. Yeah. And I think that's important to just highlight. Uh, highlight. So it's not an electrolyte. No. Because which is the point you were trying yeah, to get? Well, exactly, Sorry, gotcha. Yeah. So it's not an electrolyte because when it's in the water, 
It doesn't split apart to form two ions, for example, but it does have a charge. Correct, yeah. Hence why it's a solute because yeah. it mixes in with the water right. and, and it, can attract water in the direction in which it goes. Yeah, so yeah. again, anything with a charge can pull water towards yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, just wanted to make that point. So you're talking about the cell membrane, what can and can't get through. So in the case of you uh, saying wherever sodium goes, water goes with it, but once you come to the membrane and sodium, let's say, has a higher concentration in the extracellular space, which it does, and it has a lower in the intracellular, it may want to move into the intracellular space, but it can't. Because the sodium wants to move in. Yeah. yeah. So it can't get in because of that membrane. So then how does what happens with the water if it wants to uh, balance this act out? Mm. And because cell membranes are filled with aquaporins, which allows water to freely move back and forth. So like water channels? Water channels, that's right. Because water can't even get through a plasma membrane, right? But there's a whole bunch of water channels in every single cell of our body. The water can, in a way, freely move through those aquaporins. The sodium can't get in. Everyone needs to remember, if there is a concentration gradient, so a high concentration of one thing on one side of a membrane compared to another side, it always wants to go down its concentration gradient from high to low. Always wants to go from high to low, whether that's concentration or pressure or temperature. It doesn't matter. Nature wants things to or go gravity. from high to low. Or gravity, yeah. Things want to go from high to low. But if that sodium can't get in, like you said, the water gets dragged out towards it. And that's an important concept because that means you're now shifting fluids yep. inside and outside of Which the becomes cells. very important once we start to talk about derangements of these electrolytes on different sides of the membrane. So when we start to talk about sodium being outside what it normally is, it could then mean that water will go in a certain direction. Let's say if it's low sodium on one side, it water would go into the cell and cause the cell to uh, swell. Or if there's too much sodium extracellularly beyond what it normally is, it could pull water out of the cells mm. and cause the cells to shrink. All right, to that point, right? There's a whole bunch of different ions, positive or negatively charged elements in, in the body, right? And so if it has a positive charge, we call it a cation. And if it has a negative charge, we call it an anion, right? So if we have a think about it and have a think about all the different types of ions that are present, we've got sodium, which sits predominantly outside the cell. You said that. Yep. Chloride sits predominantly outside the cell. We've got potassium. Where does that sit? All It's pretty much all in the cell. Okay, in the cell. Um, what else is there? We've got... Um, Did you say calcium? Calcium. Where's that predominantly sitting? That's external. Yep, so predominantly outside. ECF. Magnesium. Inside. Predominantly inside. Uh, phosphate. Inside. Inside as well. So they're the main ones, right? Sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, magnesium, and phosphate. So what you've highlighted is that of these, what, six, some are mostly outside, some are mostly inside. So then the question is, wow, there's a lot of charge differences all over the place. Where's the water going to move? And at the end of the day, when everything's happy and healthy, the water doesn't move one way or another. The concentration of these things a balanced either side, yeah. which so, I think is amazing. So what's the, what is that balance called? Is that electrochemical gradient? Well, no, that balance is what we call the, if you're referring to the concentration of those things in the fluid, 
and that fluid you measure as a mass, like kilogram, it's called the osmolality. Okay. Or if you measure it as the concentration in a volume of liquid, you call it the osmolarity. Okay. And so that... Os- os- more meaning in terms of the charge differences. What dictates where they actually go? Is that based on electrical charges? Ba- based on pumps. That's but based it, on... But is that around... They try to balance each other out, the negatives and the positives? Yes. On either side? Yes. Yeah, so if... So... The things that are going to influence the movement of these ions, if there's nothing actively trying to throw something one way yeah. or another, right? Yeah. If you were to leave it to nature yeah. to let it do its thing and try and balance itself out, yeah. the positive things would want to move away from other positive things and move towards negative things. And the high concentration of things want to move down their concentration gradients. And so they would do this normally. And if you let it be, what you'd end up getting is the same charge both sides of the membrane and also the same concentration on both sides of the membrane. But what we find is that this isn't the case. We have the same constant... Sorry, Matt's just... Sorry. Matt's just dancing around his, uh, his chair. Um, what we end up finding is we have the same concentration of things inside and outside, but the charge is different inside and outside. And that's because we've got active pumps that throw things against their concentration and charge gradients. Okay. So would that be just in particular types of cells slash tissues? Or if you were to just generalize and say the general type of cell would have an, an equal positive negative in both spaces, but in some tissue, let's say excitable tissue, like nerve tissue that you want to actually send electricity and muscle, similarly, um, they there would be a charge difference because that's the whole function of what that cell is. Most tissues will have a charge difference. Okay. The relevance of the charge difference comes into play when you talk about those excitable tissues. So this brings us to something called the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. So this pump is spectacular, probably one of the most important parts of biology. It is present on nearly every single cell of the body. And what this pump does, now think pump. You hear the word pump in biology, it's going to be throwing things against their concentration gradient. So if you've got most sodium sitting outside the cell. So it's sodium is an extracellular ion by and large. So if you've got most of the sodium sitting outside, this pump is going to throw sodium outside against the concentration gradient. So basically it's throwing it uphill. If most of the potassium is inside the cell, this pump is going to throw the potassium inside the cell against, again, uphill against its concentration gradient. That means it needs energy because nature wants to do the opposite. Nature wants things to go downhill, Mm. right? Just flow down their concentration gradient. So we need ATP. All pumps use ATP. So that means it costs energy and the body won't do something that costs energy unless it's bloody important. Yeah, yeah. And so... Sodium potassium ATPase pump costs a lot. It costs so much that in the brain, 55% of all the energy that your brain uses is dedicated just to these pumps. Yeah, I think the kidney will be the same. It's very similar because they're, they're so important. And the reason why they're important, again, is they establish both a concentration gradient of sodium outside, hence why sodium's the predominant, predominant extracellular cation, 
positive charged ion, and potassium is the predominant intracellular cation. Yeah. And it and uses just so you, with energy. numbers, um, sodium's about 140 millimolar per liter yeah. extracellularly, and potassium's pretty much the same intracellularly. Yeah. So if you look at sodium in the cell, it's only about uh, 10, 10 to 15, whilst potassium's only about four outside the cell. So they're almost the exact opposite. Yeah. And it's important to do this because can I talk a little bit about the sodium potassium pumps? I've already had. No, no, like a little bit more. Okay, touch more. I've got a lot to say about the sodium potassium pumps. So if we have a look at what the sodium potassium pumps do, you're probably thinking, okay, so it creates this concentration and electrical gradient, throwing sodium out, throwing potassium in. It actually throws three sodium outside and throws two potassium inside. Now, sodium has a single charge. Potassium has a single charge. So you're throwing three positive things out of the cell and two positive things into the cell. So you're now creating not just a concentration difference of sodium and potassium, but a charge difference. Three positive things out, two positive things in. So what you could say is that this pump generates a mostly positive charge just outside the membrane and internally it's slightly negative compared mm. to that. Yep. So it's positive outside, negative inside comparatively. Right. But in addition to this, everyone needs to know that you're also going to have other channels just embedded through these membranes. And these channels will have doors that can open or shut depending on what, trigger, what, what the key is to these doors. The keys could be a ligand, so a chemical. The key could be a charge, for Vol- example. Voltage. A voltage. Mm. Now, some of the doors are just creaked open a little bit. And so one of these doors is that for potassium. So if the potassium door is creaked open a little bit, potassium is going to move through, but in what direction? Out. Out, because it's going down its concentration gradient from inside out. Now, again, some positive potassium is leaking outside, carrying its positive charge with it, making it even more positive outside and even more negative inside comparatively. These two things together, the sodium-potassium ATPase pump and this leaky potassium channel has now just created an electrical chemical gradient. Mm -hmm. This is what we call the resting membrane potential. And in most cells, it's around about negative 70 millivolts inside compared to outside. Yeah, that was was my question is whether this is happening on all cells or this is, you know, just neurons and muscles. It would happen on, on all cells, but you don't read it because it's not relevant unless it's an excitable tissue. Okay. Right? All right, because you have to have this. So, for example, um, okay, let, let's talk about exactly why the sodium potassium pump generates this electrical chemical gradient in the brain. We need to generate this electrical chemical gradient because it now provides a neuron, for example, mm. with the capacity to be able to change it. Yep. So, resting because this is at rest, yep. the neuron's not sending a signal. Membrane because it's referring to the charge difference either side. Yep. Potential it has the potential to change. Right. So, if you've got positive outside, negative inside, how could you change it? What could you do, Matt? <coughs> well... Oh, he's getting ready. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, sure, the COVID's gone. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the brain is just made up, well, not completely, but majority of its neurons, right? Yeah. Well, for some I, of I, us. Actually, I shouldn't say that because <laughs> it's probably balanced out 50-50. But um, when we think of the brain as its function, you know, predominantly it's all about neurons and sending messages somewhere you know, for sensory, for motor, or perception. So uh, a lot of the brain is just full of these things called neurons, which is a cell 
but their function is to send a message to We're doing some, a nervous to, system podcast to man. somewhere else. Okay, and the way it does this send a message is through electricity. And so, to do this, it needs to. So somehow I, I I like to say, I don't I don't say to students through electricity because I think it's a bit. Because then people think it's the same way that um, you know that your radio, power lines. and TV sends it. It's different. We don't we don't throw. They throw electrons. They play hot potato with electrons down yep. a copper wire. Yep. But our neurons don't do anything like that. Okay. So our neurons don't throw electrons down a copper wire. Instead, they throw chemicals inside across a membrane down an axon, and and they're not electrons. They're positively charged ions so they're the opposite they they don't possess an electron okay so that's why i always say that the electrical signal is actually an electrical chemical gradient change okay i know what you're saying because it it simplifies the point but i think it's important because when i talk to people then they think oh if a radio or my tv is generating this much electricity how much is my nervous system generating and you can't compare them because it's not electricity in that sense but you do measure. So when I do electrophysiology, I do it through either voltage or current, mm. which is. But it's measuring the 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 the, the charge the charge change and the charge difference yeah. across the membrane of a, of a neuron, and it's not electrons. So again, yeah, okay, you know, maybe that's chuck- the difference. Anyway, so sorry, sorry, so, sorry. So what you wanted to do to send this message um, is to somehow change the charge between the membrane. So as you said, the resting potential is. Uh, all the positive, or the majority of the positive ions are outside the cell and there's less inside the cell. So if you were to take the charge on just the inner part of the, the membrane inside the cell, it would be negative relative to the outside. Is that fair? That's what I said. So to then change that to make it more positive, you have to somehow let something into the cell that has a positive charge. Okay. So what's outside that's positive that you could potentially chuck well, in? Well, the mate? one that has the biggest gradient is sodium. Yeah. That has the biggest gradient difference. Because as we said, outside the cell, the extracellular fluid is 140, 135 to 145 millimolar per litre. Whereas inside the cell, it's only like 10 to 14. So its gradient, if the door was to open, is it wants to go out to in. Okay. So this is exactly what happens when a neuron... Um, when an action potential begins, the the doors for sodium open and then sodium rushes in to the inside of the neuron, which makes the inner part of the membrane now positive. And this now conducts that signal along its axon, depending on how long it is. Well, that will transfer all the way down its membrane, that length of the membrane. Mm-hmm. Is that it. kind of what you meant? Yeah, yeah. So the... the and that becomes the function of the neuron. The neuron is to send that... Uh, electrochemical difference yeah. down its length. And that's everything we do. Like, you know, me hearing you, seeing you, talking with you, comprehending anything is simply neurons opening up channels to let sodium rush from outside in all the way down the, the axon. New, that's right. And, and then when it gets right to the end, because all these uh, gates are now opening, because remember you said the, the membrane's closed and you can't get ion movement. But as this is happening all these gates which are vaulted they're open opened by a voltage change they start to spring open and then all that sodium does is just follow its gradient going from outside to in until we get right to the end of the neuron and then it 
in most cases changes from a, a sodium voltage gated to a calcium. So that will become important when we start to talk about calcium. And that calcium last part at the end of the neuron is what tells the neurotransmitter, whatever that is, to then release to go into the next cell to tell it to do something, whether it's a muscle to contract or a gland to release a hormone or another neuron to then do another signal. So that's the importance of the sodium-potassium pump for neurons. If you have a look at the heart, for example, it does the same thing, right? It's throwing three sodium out, two potassium in, slight positive outside compared to inside. You've got leaky potassium channels making it even more positive outside compared to inside. But here's the other thing. Now that we've generated a concentration gradient of all this sodium outside, so and Matt said earlier that calcium sits predominantly outside, but you've got some calcium inside of a muscle, right? Here's the thing with... But, ca- but it's important to say this quickly. Uh, sorry to inter- interrupt. Calcium as a free floating ion shouldn't exist in the cell because it's actually harmful and that will probably lead to the cell's death. Great so it, point. It has to be... Especially in ha- high abundance. Yeah, it has yeah. to be held in a sp- space. So it's either held in mitochondria or smooth ER. Yeah. Because if it's released, it probably leads to apoptosis. Awesome point. Really, really good point. So calcium, um, this is what I always tell my students, is if, if if calcium enters a muscle cell, that muscle cell will contract. The end, right? That's, that's, you know, remember that. Now, like Matt said, if calcium is free floating in the cytoplasm of that muscle cell, it's going to contract. Sure. Huge amounts are there. That's going to trigger the cell to die. It's one of the ways that we understand cell death, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's locked away often in, Matt said, the smooth endoplasmic reticulum, which in muscle is called the sarcoplasmic reticulum, or that calcium can be chucked outside. Yeah. And this is a perfect segue into what I was talking about. If you've got sodium predominantly outside of a muscle cell, now we're talking about heart here, so cardiac muscle cell, sodium wants to go back inside. It wants to go down its concentration gradient. And it can do so, but it needs to swap itself with a calcium ion. So sodium can jump in, but it swaps it for a calcium to go out, which is really good because you want the calcium outside so the heart muscle doesn't remain contracted. Perfect. There's a drug called digoxin. And what digoxin does is it actually stops the sodium-potassium ATPase pump, which means it doesn't throw sodium out. Sodium stays inside, which means... You can't exchange sodium with calcium and calcium builds up inside the heart muscle, which means the heart muscle has a a greater and greater abundance of calcium Calcium, and it contracts. More forcefully. Yeah, Yeah. really forcefully. So I think the point of that drug, this this could possibly be used in patients who have heart failure. But let me finish first because it then goes straight to that point. When the heart, it's called positive inotropy, right? The heart contracts really hard. This actually triggers the vagus nerve to go, oh, that's contracting pretty hard. I'm going to slow its rate down. So the vagus nerve picks this up, slows the heart rate down, and what you now have is a heart that's contracting really forcefully but slowly. Yeah. So it becomes a really effective pump. Right. And then that means... So does that, is the vagus input just due to um, the more... Homeostatic uh, control. But is it to do with just because the, it's a more powerful contraction that you have a more effective stroke volume yeah, and therefore 
your blood pressure and so forth is just held at a better, more efficient spot. So then yeah. the, the vagus nerve just says, well, you don't have to beat as fast. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So the vagus feeds back and now you've got this super efficient pump, which when would you need to use this, the joxin to make the heart a super efficient pump? I think it's at least one case that I'm aware of is just patients who have heart failure. So their heart right. isn't effective to what their body needs. Um, the heart's given up. So essentially what you're trying to do is make Much the like heart... Much like me in our relationship. That's right. You've given up many times. You've, 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 always come, you've always come back. That's what I like about <laughs> you. Um, so um, it basically just makes the heart as efficient as it can be yeah. just to keep going for the demand that's yeah, required. Perfect. So without the sodium potassium ATPase pump, you know, you can't throw the calcium out and you can't reset a contraction uh, and then you can sort of leverage that function with medications like digoxin to help manage people with heart failure. So just really quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just in terms of, say, a neuron set in an action potential. Yeah. So we spoke about sodium going in. Yep. But then to reset the nerve so it can set another signal, it has to throw that back out. Which is the sodium potassium ATP. And that's, pump. so that's the depolarization, repolarization, and then essentially get into its resting potential, which is said is like negative 70. That's all around the pump. Yes. Right? But in terms of the heart muscle that you spoke about, you brought calcium into it that a neuron doesn't have. Um, in, in the same way. Yeah. What is calcium... It does have it, just uses it differently. Yeah. What is the calcium doing in the myocardiocyte contraction phase that's slightly different to the neuron? Is it just... Because um, that's the plateau phase, right? Yeah. So, uh, listeners, if you, under, if you know action potentials, then... Or maybe if you don't know action potentials, Google action potential and have a look at a graph and you'll see that there's a spike in an action potential graph. And you can have an action potential of any excitable cell, whether it be a neuron or a muscle cell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you compare the two, you'll see that for a neuron, it just bumps up and then falls back down. Yeah. And the reason why is because heaps of so positive sodium has gone in, so it bumps up. That's depolarization. And then, and then it gets thrown back out and then it falls back down. Repolarization. Because, right? Repolarization. And that, that repolarization is about potassium. Yes, so if you think about it, you throw all the sodium into the cell. Makes it positive. Makes it positive, so it boosts up. And then you throw potassium outside the cell and then it falls back down. Yep. And then now you've got potassium outside and sodium inside. Oh no, whatever can we do? Let's use the sodium-potassium ATPase pump to swap it back around. Now the whole thing's reset. Yep. For a heart muscle, the exact same thing happens, except at the same time that so uh, potassium is thrown back out, calcium gets thrown in. And that means a positive thing's going in at the same time that a negative, uh, a positive thing is going out. Cal positive calcium's in, positive potassium's out. It balances each other out in regards to charge. And so you have this plateau phase, this just long straight line that occurs. And the whole, it, and all that's highlighting is calcium's coming in. Why do we need calcium in a heart muscle? Because what I said is if calcium goes in, it contracts. Oh, okay. All so right. that's the point of contraction. In the plateau tells you, oh, this is where heart muscle is contracting okay, or any right. muscle is contracting. Yeah, right, okay. Um, okay, so and finally, I know I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on the ATPase pump, but finally it's super important in the kidneys. So remember, your kidneys filter our blood plasma and the components inside. But what it does is because it's really, really uh, quite an evolutionarily old mechanism. 
and we used to live in the oceans, which were quite salty, it's really good at handling salts, electrolytes, ions. And the way it does it is by taking it all out and then throwing it all back in. So it basically filters all the salts and then throws 99% of it back into the body, Mm. which means we need a way of being able to pick and choose sodium, chloride, potassium, magnesium, calcium, and selectively taking it out of the urine and throwing it back into the blood. And this is where the sodium potassium pump comes into play. So just briefly... And also maintain its own gradient because as you go down the nephron, the loop, it gets more concentrated outside the the nephron, which allows you to move things in and out. Yes, and this is the way that we manage how much urine we produce is by if we pee out more sodium, we pee out more water, right? If we pee out less sodium, we pee out less water. So that's, you know, so sodium again. I said sodium is important for fluid balance, not just inside the cells, but peeing out. So just quickly, the, the sodium, so again, at every part of, so remember that the part of the kidneys that filter stuff is called the nephron, right? That's the filtration unit of the kidneys. There's a million per kidney. Exactly right. And we have two kidneys. So how many is that? Two million. Oh yeah. So at the very beginning, the proximal convoluted tubule, the very beginning of the nephron. What's actually the glomerulus. All right. The, the next part, the very beginning of the tubules of the nephron, right, is the proximal... Well, com- the, the glomerulus is where you make your filtrate. Yeah. And then the PCT, the proximal, is where you start to um, fiddle around with what you want to bring back in. Go. Yeah. Okay. People can listen to our nephron <laughs> podcast if you like, but all I wanted to highlight is because the sodium potassium ATPS pump is present at every single cell along the tubules of the nephron, we can do the following things. In the proximal convoluted tubule... Sodium is thrown out of the cell because of the sodium potassium pump. So just remember, inside all of these cells of the tubules, they basically have no sodium, right? Which is great because it means sodium now wants to go from the urine into the cells of the tubules and then from the cells of the tubules, the sodium potassium ATPS pump throws it into the blood. blood, Awesome. So the urine, sodium gets pulled out from the urine into the cell at the proximal convoluted tubule and it carries glucose with it great we can reabsorb glucose this is why if you eat adequate amounts of glucose all of it is reabsorbed back into your bloodstream if you eat too much obviously it goes out in the pee so that's what the importance of the pump there at the proximal convoluted tubule so but a little bit further down it's pulling in not just glucose but amino acids as well and if sodium goes in it can also throw out hydrogen ions So again, we're selectively now pulling in nutrients, so reabsorbing glucose, reabsorbing amino acids, and excreting hydrogen ions. So changing the acidity of not just our body, but our urine as well. At the thick ascending loop, as the sodium comes into the cell, it carries potassium and chloride with it. So we can reabsorb other ions with that. Um, At the distal convoluted tubule, we can reabsorb chloride with sodium. At the collecting ducts, sodium gets reabsorbed by itself, right? And so this is important because we can leverage these functions by giving drugs that block them called uh, diuretics. 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 I thought you meant just the last one, which is I think is aldosterone, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so you can give a patient a diuretic. It blocks these sodium reabsorption functions at the kidneys and sodium gets pee out 
which means water gets peed out because water is attracted to sodium. And that's the whole point of a diuretic. Yeah, if someone's Diuresis. got too much fluid in the body, their blood pressure's too high, you can reduce the fluid, they've got edema, whatever it may be, you can pee out. All right, I'm done with sodium potassium pump. I'm sorry. Which, I spoke which about takes that for us a now to this because now we're going to look at uh, derangements or imbalances of these electrolytes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with sodium since that's what we're talking about. Let's go. Go, so, go, 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 go. What are we on about? All right. So sodium, just for uh, concentration, as I said, the concentration of sodium outside the cell. So this is extracellular fluid, which includes your blood. And this is the way you'd measure it. You know, take blood, you'd measure the biochemistry of your blood. Sodium levels should be 135, between 135, 145 millimolar per litre. So we spoke a lot about this. So sodium as a function is predominantly for fluid balance. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And what else goes with fluid balance is blood pressure. So it has a, a, has a very strong effect. Mm. Um, it has an, has an important role in nerve conduction and muscle contraction. Yep. So these Which are, we spoke about, yep. part of the action potential. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's any... Anything more important we can talk before we talk about hyper or hypo? Um, well, I think in terms of where it is taken in, obviously we ingest it in our foods. The recommendation is approximately 1.5 to 2 grams per day. But if you look, at least I found the American dietary intakes is between 3 to 7. So that's probably double, double to three times what it should be. And we have around about 3,000 millimoles of sodium in our body at any one time. Okay. That's that's pretty much how we maintain it. So that means if you're taking too much in, like th- two to three times more than you should, that means we need to have some tight regulation on how to get rid of it. Yes. And so and sodium it, balance and water balance are, 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 are regulated together. So we have to talk about them together. Yeah. So by and large, you spoke about the urine and the kidney. So the strongest regulation for this solute is going to be the kidney with an array of hormones. Yeah. It's windy um, outside, so if you can hear that, it's, uh, it's blowing quite a gust. So I do apologise. So the two, probably say two, the two biggest hormones that will play a role with sodium and therefore water balance would be aldosterone and um, ADH. Yes, which okay. is sometimes known in the States as arginine vasopressin. Vasopressin, yeah. yeah. Okay, so do you want to get, jump into the two derangements, so hyper and hypostates? Well, I think, yeah, I, I think so. I think we should talk about, first. firstly, maybe we should talk about, um, I think, f- fluid first and then natremia in the sense that um, if if when your body measures sodium in it it doesn't measure absolute sodium it measures how much sodium relevant to how much fluid therefore your sodium concentration isn't just dependent on how much sodium is actually Uh, in the fluid but how much fluid is also in the body and so so sodium relative to the fluid exactly hence why it's millimoles per liter it's a concentration and so in your mind you need to remember this that if you've got too much sodium which is termed hypernatremia, it could be because you have either too much salt in the fluid of your body or not enough fluid that the salt is bathed in. in, Other way around, hyponatremia, 
So not enough salt. It could be simply you don't have enough salt in the fluid of the body or you've got too much fluid in your body compared to the salt that's present. And I think those two points are super important to, to get across. Okay. Now I think we should we can move forward. All right. Well, that, that sets it up really well because the way that we categorize these two derangements, hyper and hypo, is relative to the fluid in the body as mm. well. So uh, uh, we can go through that now. So let's start with hyper. Hyper means high. So this term would be hypernatremia. So what's the natrium? Uh, it's sodium, but I always forget it's what... It's just, just a Latin term for it's sodium. It's a Latin term. I can't remember exactly what it re- refers okay. to. So basically all it means is hyper, high, nat, nat whatever. That part is sodium. Amia is in blood. What would dictate this as a level? It's anything above 145 yep. millimolar or milli equivalent per liter. Okay, so this just means you have high amounts of salt within the plasma because that's what you're measuring it with. Yep. But that's a proxy for your extracellular space because it's freely fl- floating between your blood vessels and the interstitial space. Okay. Now, as you said, Mike, this could be, this high amount could be either you've just taken too much salt in relative to the water or you've lost free water relative to the sodium. So it could be one of those two ways. And can we say that if you're losing water and sodium together at the same concentration, you are not hypo or hyponatremic. You simply have issues with volume. Okay. So, so... Uh, and so the main symptoms you would get if you lose sodium and water in equivalent concentrations or equivalent amounts is simply just fluid issues in in regards to like blood pressure would be the main issue. It's just going to be a volemic issue, not a natremic issue. Okay, good point. All right, so when we look at hypernatremia, we could break into three categories. We can break into whether the volume is low, the body fluid is low, so that would be hypervolemic, whether it would be high volume, hypervolemia or iso meaning this, the volume or is pretty uvolemic. much the same. Yeah, or you Okay, so it's kind of in those three categories. So let's start with the hypo. So this is low blood volume, sorry, low, low body fluid volume relative to a high sodium. Does that make sense? So what this would suggest is you've lost both water and sodium, but you've lost more water than sodium relative to it. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, the way that this could be looked at is that it could be from a renal cause, so you've just peed out a whole lot, or it's a non-renal cause. Okay. So one of the most... And the way that you would differentiate the two, whether it's a renal cause or a non-renal, you just take a person's urine, mm. and if it's got a high amounts of sodium in it, that would be suggestive it's caused by the, a renal issue. Yeah opposed to if it's a low sodium amount, that would be suggestive it's a non-renal cause. Okay? So I've just, I'm just going to list one. You may have others, but one... Are we talking about fluid loss without sodium? It's just more water lost to sodium. You still lose sodium, mm. okay, but you lose a lot more uh, fluid relative to the sodium. Okay? So because you're losing more fluid, more water... Um, you're going to become hypernutremic. Mm. But you, uh, I thought you said that if you measured the urine and you found there was sodium in it, that yep. it's a renal cause. 
Yep. The, because, because you're losing sodium but more water through the kidney as a cause. So an example would here would be an osmotic um, diuretic effect or diuresis. So an example would be if a person had diabetes, okay, and they are peeing polyuria, okay, they're losing a, a lot, a lot of water, but there's still sodium in it. Mm. Okay? But it's due to the glucose. Correct. But they're losing more water to the sodium as a comparison. So overall, they're becoming hypervolemic, but they're shifting towards a higher sodium amount. So how come when you said that if you measure the urine and there's no sodium in it? No, there a, is. There is sodium. It's a non-renal in, cause. Oh, so in a non-renal cause, so this would be if it was caused by sweating, okay? So if you have excessive sweating or you've overheated, so from the temperature, you've lost your fluid through sweating, okay? So your kidneys are trying to hold on to that dehydration. So when you measure the urine, there's no salt or water in it. Oh, because it's trying to conserve salt. Correct. Sorry. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Okay, so so you're talking about water loss predominantly – both sodium and water may be lost. You do lose you do lose salt in this case, but a lot more water to it. And that's all that matters because that matters. you're going to have a higher concentration. So you said you can have renal. So and the best example for a renal cause would be osmotic diarrhea, like diuresis. a diabetes. So yeah. type one, um, they haven't got the insulin, so they just peeing out all the glucose. Yeah. But because glucose is uh, osmotic, it pulls the water with it, and you're not reabsorbing the sodium. Mm. Sodium because all that steps that you spoke about the nephron, all the the salt's gone out with it because it's yeah. flushing it through too quick. Other other causes of the osmotic diuresis can be uh, sorbitol and mannitol, which yeah. sometimes can be IV, from IVs, yep. intravenous, um, but also high steroid use and a high protein diet can actually also have that osmotic diuretic effect okay. and pull more water out than sodium. Yep. And therefore you can be, what do we call it? Hypovolemic hypernatremia? Is that yes, what that's right. Okay. That's right. Yep. And just in terms of what will then happen um, as a result of this, because you're becoming, uh, hy- it's going to become hypertonic in the extracellular space, yep. it's going to start pulling fluid from the intracellular space out. So, what's going to, you're going to see. Cells will shrink. Cells will start shrinking. So, you having, you're going to start to have dysfunctions in your intracellular or your cells. I know this is a bad time to bring it up. But should we talk about, I know we're talking about disease states right now, but should we talk about how the body normally responds physiologically in homeostasis when fluid volumes change so that we can make sense of this? Um, so when somebody just, what happens when somebody's just slightly dehydrated or not? What happens if they've, got, they've eaten a little bit too much sodium or, oh yeah, or not? Really and quickly. Then, and then we can talk about... And that's, what, that's one of the first signs of this hyponatremia is... One of the first ones is thirst. Because then once we talk about that homeostatic feedback, then we can bring this in. Because obviously we're going to be talking about things like diabetes insipidus, but we haven't spoken about the role of ADH, for example. Yep. So, sorry everyone, but just, just to bring it back, if you are dehydrated, and let's just say you haven't taken in enough water or you've lost too much water due to exercise or whatever it may be, or sweating or respiration or, or whatever, you can lose water a number of different ways. Um, you can have insensible water loss through sweating and breathing and feces. Um, and then you can have sensible water loss, which is going to be obviously through urination predominantly. Um, and let's just say you're not replenishing that fluid. So what happens is the water drops down and the concentration of sodium is higher. So you are in effect hyponatremic, yep. right? Um, this, is, this is picked up by the cells in your hypothalamus. 
hypothalamus because the cells there pick up the osmotic changes. So the concentration inside and outside of a cell should be equivalent at around about 280, 290 milliosmoles per litre. That's the concentration. But if, like Matt said, the water volume has gone outside the cell, but the sodium concentration has gone up because the water's dropped and sodium's higher, water gets pulled out of the cell and that cell shrinks. The shrinking cells in the hypothalamus is what triggers neurons to release a hormone called ADH. And that travels to the kidneys to pull water back into the body to conserve it, trying to bring the water back up. It also triggers your thirst reflex from your hypothalamus. Mm. So you straight away grab some water and you drink to replenish it. If your blood volume has gone down, your kidneys trigger the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system to release aldosterone, which then reabsorbs sodium. Yeah, at, yep. at the kidneys, and because that and sodium's that, been reabsorbed, water gets reabsorbed. That's what I was meaning by the non-renal cause, mm. because it's compensating. Yeah, you're not actually getting salt put out in your urine. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ex- exactly right. So that's what happens when we are dehydrated, right? So ADH, thirst, and aldosterone. If you are overhydrated, well, then you become hyper. Well, you become hypotonic. And often your your blood pressure can increase, and so it can stretch the atria of your heart, and it releases atrial natriuretic peptide, and that pees out sodium, which also pees out water with it. Yeah. So you have equivalent sodium and water loss, which reduces the volume as well. But you can also crave salt, right? Your brain's really good. If you need salt, your brain's pretty good yeah, at telling yeah. you get some salt into your body. Yeah. And then the water goes in. Okay. So. I'm sorry, Matt, no, but I thought we'd say it that. Set up, it will set up the, the rest of this now. All right. So you said if we're talking about hyponatremia, first, the, first one way it can occur is simply just the water loss. You're just losing more water than sodium. It can be renal or non-renal. The main renal is osmotic diuresis. It can be diabetic due to all the glucose yeah, being yeah. peed out. It could be due to mannitol, sorbitol, steroid use high-protein diet, anything that's in a hypercatabolic state because you're breaking down substances that can pull water with it as you, as you pee it out. But the sodium remains at its normal levels, but the concentration gets higher because it's relevant yeah, to the right. volume. Yeah, exactly. Um, what else? Is there anything else that you can release too much water and not sodium at the kidneys? I can think of one. Well, that's probably the main one in terms of that category. I don't want to confuse the listeners and just give a whole long list because we've got to go through other categories. So is this? So does diabetes insipidus fit here? That will go into the isovolemic one. Apologies. Okay, yeah. All right. So the next one is hyponatremia, so high sodium with a high volume. So you actually have a, a large body volume as well, body fluid volume as well. Okay. Okay. So, so what would cause this? So just too much salt intake. Gotcha. Okay. So if you were to be on salt tablets... Okay, oh, yeah. or if you were to take taking IV fluids with uh, sodium in it, yeah, that would do it. Another cause would Drinking be seawater. Yeah, that's it's potentially. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, another one would be if you've got an issue with release of too much aldosterone. Yep. Okay, so if you're releasing a hormone with with too much aldosterone, um, you know this is the adrenal gland. It's releasing a lot of aldosterone. That's going to be reabsorbing a lot of salt back into your blood, and, and water will follow. And water will follow, and then so you get a disease state that comes with too much aldosterone, hyperaldosteronism. Well, well, I think Cushing's is wrapped up in it. I think Cushing's has got a couple of ones on board. I think that's cortisol, but I think because it's the mineral corticoid and the glucocorticoids are similar, I think there is overlap there. But 
Fact, sure. fact check me on that. Yep. Uh, and then the, the third category of hypernutremia is what you said. Your, your body fluids are actually what they should be. So it's your isovolemic, or what did you call it? U? Uvolemic. Yep. And an example here would be diabetes insipidus, where you've actually released in um, excessive amounts of, no, sorry, low amounts of ADH, or it's not working at the nephron, and therefore you are um, peeing out free water. Okay. Not like huge amounts as you would in the diabetes case, but enough to lose free water relative to the salt. And so you are still hyponatremic, but you're slightly, well, not, you're about the same as in terms of your body fluids. So what does ADH do? ADH release from the posterior pituitary gland in response to hyponatremia, too much sodium. Um, it travels to the distal convoluted tubules of the kidneys, of the nephrons, uh, chucks in these little channels yeah, that help channels. to reabsorb water yeah. back, back into the body. But that would be right at the end. So you've, you've already reabsorbed a lot of water. This is the last little squeeze of the sponge, so to speak. What do you mean you've, you've reabsorbed a lot of water? Well, through the nephron, you've already Oh, you mean in a, a normal state? Yeah, yeah. So I thought you meant through other mechanisms. I thought you meant like through aldosterone and whatever. But no, you, yeah, ADH it's helps to... ADH is just kind of trying to drag the last bit of water out of the urine before it goes into the toilet. Yes. And things like alcohol can blunt yeah. ADH from doing its job, hence why... You break the seal if you know you have a couple of beers and you go to the pub and then once you start peeing you seem like you can't stop peeing or your first pee after a couple of beers is a real big dilute pee because it stopped ADH from reabsorbing water and then that effect sort of diminishes. But you've actually forgotten a fourth cause of hyponatremia, okay, which is just impaired water intake. You actually don't take in any water. So you spoke about too much water being lost, so the sodium goes up. You spoke about bringing too much sodium in. And you well, they were just volume states, but I, I guess that this one would fit in the hypervolemic, hypernutremic. So it's just you're not balancing out the water loss to water intake. So this, and ex- that, that, that's a good example because that would be a, a common cause of hypernutremia, hypovolemia in the elderly. I hope we're not they, confusing people. They are they're losing water from the body, which is just how we lose water normally through urine, feces, mm, mm. and then sensible loss through breathe, breathing, yes. and what else? How do I also, um, just through skin, I sweat, guess. Sweat, yeah. Um, so actually, w- insensible, insensible loss through skin actually isn't sweat. That's a separate mechanism. So people who don't have sweat glands still lose a couple of hundred mils just through, skin. Just through their skin, okay. which is an important point. So with the the elderly, they're yes. not they're not rehydrating themselves enough. That's right. And so this would still fit into this category that you said. Yeah. But okay. It, cool. But, so it's a hy- hypovolemia, but hypernatremia. Yes, yeah. and and it's not just the old, like, I mean people with dementia, for example, because they they don't um, think about taking the water in. Uh, the elderly, just because of the circumstances, they should be, but they're not cognitive impaired. Yeah. People on mechanical ventilators, they tend to lose huge amounts, a lot of insensible water loss through the ventilation. But also people who may have something called adipsia or hypodipsia. So they actually don't feel like drinking because there's some sort of pathology in the brain, which can be septo-optic dysplasia, craniopharyngioma, so tumours, for example, that can actually impact certain parts of the brain, and you don't get thirsty. Oh, wow. So anyway, I just thought I'd say that. Yep. So That fits well, actually, because that's, so that's, I think that's one of the most common causes of the hypovolemic, hypernutremic case, is the elderly who just don't take enough water in. 
Okay. So you can have hypernatremia a number of different ways. So you can have normal That's, that's normal just the water, way of classifying it. So you can have normal water volume in the body, but too much sodium yep. because you've ingested it or you're not getting rid of it. You can or you're have, reabsorbing too much of it at the kidney. Yeah. 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 So you're not getting rid of it. And, oh, sorry. And, <laughs> and, and so, and you can also have natremia, hypernatremia, but with high water levels yeah. in the body. And that would cause edema. And, and, yeah. and that was, what was the cause of that? What was producing hy- hyper? Hypernatremia with hypervolemia. That, that, that was what you just said. So you're either taking too much salt in or you're reabsorbing too much of it. Okay. And then you've got water loss excessive compared to the salt loss yeah, so and that that's would, like vomiting diarrea yeah, yeah. um and sweat sweat renal yep. osmotic uh, diarrhea yeah, yeah exactly okay all right all right and now gosh. we go now we go to the hyponatremias yeah i'll be quick now the hyponatremias this so is a bit easier so this is the low sodium but yeah. the same thing happens it's in those three categories it's low sodium to low volume low so- sodium to high volume, low sodium, to a normal volume. Yeah. Okay. Is that all right? Okay. So we'll start off with low sodium to a low body volume. So this is hyponatremia with hypovolemia. Yes. So Pe- wh- people need to know that it, it, you, even though we're talking about volume changes in hypernatremia, there's still at the end of the day more sodium compared to the water, regardless. And in hyponatremia, there's less sodium compared to the water, yeah. regardless. So yeah. we may say hypovolemia and hyponatremia. It's just there's less water, but there's even less sodium. Yeah. The starting point here is um, the level of sodium. So if you had a patient that has hypernatremia, so there are their sodium levels in the plasma that you just took of the blood test is above 145, you now have to figure out what's the cause of that. And then you can categorize in it. Is it, do they have this yeah. with a high volume, yeah. a low volume or a normal volume? Yeah. And that then it's can, important because, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yep. So now we, we're doing the hyponatremia. So this is below 135. So now you've got to figure out what's the cause of that. So in states of hypovolemia, so they've got low volume. What's happened here is they've lost a lot more sodium to water, okay? And again, it can be broken into a renal cause or a non-renal cause, okay? So a classic renal cause would be just um, certain uh, diuretics, like a loop diuretic, and, oh, you're, yeah. and you're just expelling a lot. You're getting rid of water, but you're getting rid of a lot of the sodium with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay, and then well, that's the way we're getting rid of the water, right? Yeah. Is by getting rid of the sodium. And the non-renal, again, it would just come down to uh, probably chronic diarrhea. You know, yeah. like you've lost a lot of um, sodium in in the stool, mm. the watery stool. Okay, I think it's also important to say that people think that you do lose sodium in sweat, right? You do. It's the it's the ion you lose most when you're exercising and sweating. But people think they lose a lot more sodium than they actually do in their sweat. So athletes probably need to supplement with sodium um, after exercise. There is no guideline on how much they need to supplement with after all this research because it's really hard to determine how much sodium you've lost in, in sweat. And so to know how much you need to take on top of that 
we don't know. Um, and that would be individualistic too, right? You'd have to figure yeah, out. Absolutely. What depends on temperature, mm-hmm. depends on surface area, depends on sweat glands, all this type of stuff. But I think, again, just to iterate, I think people think they lose more sodium than they actually do. Just wanted to say that. Yep. Okay, moving on to now the hypervolemic states. The one, the one I'll focus on here is just the edema cases here. So um, this category of people is that they've retained body fluid, but they are hyponatremic, so they're kind of diluted out. So some classic examples are um, congestive heart failure, uh, cirrhosis and nephrotic syndrome. So that's the ones where you've lost probably albumin um, and all that fluid has remained in the interstitial space and you get the ankle edemas, mm. right? Does that make sense? So congestive heart failure, it's gone back down to the body and you get your swollen ankles because you're right side heart failure. So you just retain a lot of fluid in the interstitial space because you can't just get it back in the plasma and get rid of it. So it's just out in the fluid. Or you've lost your albumin. Because remember, albumin's important for pulling water back into the intravascular space. If you've got cirrhosis, your liver is failing, so it's not making the albumin. Or nephrotic syndrome, you're peeing out all your albumin. So all this fluid... All is remaining in your um, in your tissue, but it's still your extracellular space. Okay. Finally, there's the isovolume to hyponatremia, and the only example I'll give you here is the opposite of insipidus. This is where you release too too much ADH, and that's the syndrome of inappropriate ADH. Okay. And so you're holding on to too much water. Okay. And that then dilutes out the sodium. So you're still hyponatremic, but your body fluid's about what it normally should be. All right. So there you go. That's sodium. So pathologies of ADH can lead to either hypernatremia or hyponatremia. So not enough ADH being released um, means that you pee out too much water and you can become hypernatremic, which is what what disease causes ADH not to be released? That's insipidus. Insipidus. Okay. So that can Diabetes be either from the brain or the kidneys just don't yeah. respond to it. So that's a nephrogenic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then you can have too much. So syndrome of inappropriate ADH release. And you have too much fluid and therefore... It just dilutes the sodium dilutes out. Dilutes so the sodium. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. All right. Interesting. Yeah. All right. That's a lot of stuff there for the sodium. <laughs> All right. But what happens? What happens to the body? If you have hypernatremia or hyponatremia, what does, how does that affect somebody? Well, what are the co- symptoms? It, well, it, because it's affecting the, the excitable tissue, it's going to most notably affect the brain in the central nervous system. So yeah. um, you'll start to become probably irritable, lethargic. You may... Oh, no. I think I'm experiencing it right you, now. You may get... Uh, some kind of twitching, but then if it continues, it can go into kind of a, a loss of consciousness, coma and death. And this is for both? For both, yeah. yeah okay. It's really hard to determine, yeah. d- differentiate the two sometimes with the s- symptoms because um, once it uh, starts affecting the excitable tissue, like neurons, it's just not working. So yeah. weakness, um, you know, uh, any kind of thing that the, the neuron's not working, it's kind of the same. Yeah. So it's really hard. I, I wouldn't imagine not a clinician, but I wouldn't imagine that these diagnoses would ever be done clinically through, you know, signs and symptoms that would be done um, in terms of blood tests and then more accurate objective terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can I talk about something interesting when it comes to hyponatremia? So 
When there's too much sodium outside the cell compared to inside the cell, so hyponatremia, um, water's going to be pulled out of the cell, right? Mm. And the cell shrinks. Now, the body actually has adaptive regulatory mechanisms to try and maintain the fluid balance. And so what it does is it tries to import a whole bunch of what we call ionic osmolites, so other ions that can pull water. So it imports sodium into the cell and potassium and chloride. And so within minutes, water gets pulled back into the cell because that cell is only worried about its own fluid volume. And because it's pulled out, the cell doesn't want to die because of uh, because okay. it's intracellular dehydration. Sodium goes in, potassium goes in, chloride goes in, and it pulls water in, which is a sh- short-term fix. But the thing is, all these ion influxes are cytotoxic. And so it can damage the cell. So what happens over days if somebody's hyponatremic over multiple days is, or even hours to days, is that those ions are actually replaced with less toxic osmolites. So they move out and other things that can pull water into the cell move in. Again, things like sorbitol, taurine, myoinositol, they get pulled in as well. And also proteins go into the cell to get pulled in. Um, But the problem as well is this whole process can pull in cytokines and reactive oxygen species and then, again, damage the cell. So this is just one mechanism in which the cells can die due to the hyponatremia. Yeah, right. It, but it, I thought it was amazing that there's actually the adaptive... It doesn't just shrink and then stays shrunk and dies. It tries to balance it out by pulling things in. Then it goes, ah, okay, this is too long. I'll throw you guys back out. I'm going to pull other things back in. Okay, fluid volume's good. Oh, but it's a trade-off between do I have fluid, no fluid, or do I pull in these things that can damage me? <laughs> and I thought that that was quite interesting. Amazing. And that people with hypovolemia, regardless of the hyper and hyponatremia and I could be wrong here but from what I could tell is that volume correction is the first thing that needs to be done yeah, before yeah. you correct the so a good example is the sodium if, balance if you've got high amounts of sodium and low volume um, you've in all cases of hyponatremia you're getting the shift from the intracellular to the extracellular of water and the, all the hypos it's going from extracellular to intracellular yeah. so one's shrinking and one's swelling but that's a good point. So with the hyper, hyponatremia, hypovolemia, so you got low volume, the first thing that would be d- done, so that let's say that elderly patient, they haven't drank a lot, they become dehydrated in the nursing home. We have questions about their blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. You t- go to the hospital, the first thing they'll give them is normal saline because that's going to stay in the extracellular space. Yeah. That will boost up their intravascular volume and get their blood pressure up. Once that volume has been rectified, yeah. then they can give free water yeah. and then that the will shift across back into the IC, into yeah. the intracellular space and fix that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Also, something I discovered, I didn't realize this, is that while kidneys have been the primary organ for sodium homeostasis, which was spoken about because that's where ADH and aldosterone works, right? The skin now seems to be an important organ that stores pools of sodium. And so and sodium can move in and out of the extracellular fluid depending on its requirements, from skin. Wow. So How's that regulated? That. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But I do know that ADH um, and aldosterone actually work in other cells, not just the kidneys. It would make sense. Yeah. All right. Um, look, Potassium. Hey, just quickly, mm. sodium and blood pressure. We spoke about it. Yes, but 
does your intake of sodium just generally through your diet, does it affect your blood pressure? Because the kidneys are really good at regulating how much. Obviously, you said earlier that we need, you said something like 1.5 to 2 mm. grams per day, but we're ingesting something like 7, 8, 9 grams per day. Yeah. We're so good at managing salts through our kidneys because we began in the oceans. So we've got really good old evolutionary mechanisms to do so. Does our salt intake influence our blood pressure long term? And the answer to that is for some. <laughs> so I think also um, uh, there seems to be a relationship between salt and potassium. And it yeah. seems that um, historically humans have eaten or ate a lot more potassium to salt relative to, to sodium, should I say. And that has a, uh, a beneficial, beneficial effect or a protective effect on blood pressure. Because they had more bananas but, and less chips, that's but, why. But in modern times, we've done the opposite. We yeah. eat less potassium and more sodium. And that, at least what I read, seems to have a negative pressure on our cardiovascular. Interesting. But sorry. I, was just, I just wanted to highlight the fact that because it's, it would make sense, and doctors have been saying it for decades, is that reduce your salt intake because wherever sodium goes, water follows. So if you've got a lot of salt in your blood, water's going to be in your blood, and blood volume is directly related to blood pressure. So if your blood volume goes up, your blood pressure goes up. So reduce salt intake. This seems to be the case for 50% of people who are hypertensive, so who have diagnosed chronically elevated blood pressure, 50% of them seem to be salt sensitive, meaning their salt intake can directly alter their blood pressure. The other 50%, we don't know. Okay. What, what the cause could be some genetic issue. It could be some issue with the renin angiotensin aldosterone yeah, yeah. system or the sympathetic nervous and system. this would fit into primary hypertension. That's, that's right. But for 25% of people who are normotensive, have normal blood pressure, they're also salt sensitive, but they probably just don't ingest enough to be hypertensive. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I just wanted to highlight that point. All right, let's move to potassium because the rest of the ions are going to be a little bit, not easier, but they're not Quicker. definitely not going to be as extensive as Matt was with his... Uh, <laughs> Hyper, hyper. All right, I'll just quickly fly through potassium then. Okay, potassium, 98% of it in the body is where? In the cells. Very good. Um, predominantly, it's maintained by your favorite pump. Yes, the uh, sodium potassium ATPase pump. It plays a very important role for the osmotic gradient within the cells, mm. where, whereas sodium's extracellular osmotic gradient. Okay, potassium plays a very important role in excitable tissue, so nerve and muscle, predominantly to maintain rest in membrane potential, which in both cases is a very negative rest in membrane potential. Yeah. Is that okay? Then that's fair. I think we're recapping nicely what we've, which is good because it, it plays. A, it's all about so uh, potassium here. Plays a very important role in heart rhythm, which we'll get to briefly. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be tightly regulated because. Derangements in this yeah. is lethal. Yeah, unlike sodium, which it is, but you could probably go out of the range of sodium um, somewhat for some distant, some length of time without huge effects. Do it well, potassium. It's also, it's also because sodium influences water balance, which can dilute it out. And our kid, and again, remember, sodium sits outside the cell. So you can measure it by measuring the blood, and you can get your sodium concentration levels right. But it, Measure, you can't measure the concentration of something inside the cell. It's too difficult. So you measure your proxy for intracellular potassium concentration is by measuring the blood and by measuring its concentration outside the cell. 
Yeah. Right? And yeah. so so potassium changes are really tricky because potassium can move in and out and maybe you've got too much potassium but it's locked in the cell. You don't yeah. know. Yeah, okay. So you may have, what's it called if you have too much potassium? Hyperkalemia. All right. So you may have hyperkalemia but you that's don't blood, know it. That's blood though. Okay, but, yeah. but you may have too much potassium mm. and it's locked in the cells. And oh, then yeah. you do something and it shunts it all out. Okay. And then it can be crazy damaging. Because again, so the way I like to think about this is if, if I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead of the, the, no, no. the thing, but you're supposed to have very low levels of this positive potassium outside the cell, yeah. like four millimoles per liter, right? Three to, 3.5 to five. Right, so let's just average it at four. <laughs> <laughs> With, yep, right? yep. We'll average it at four. Now, you said very minor fluctuations of this can be, can be lethal. So think about it. The sodium-potassium ATPase pump throws the sodium out and the potassium in. But I said there's leaky potassium channels. So potassium leaks outside down its concentration yeah. gradient. Oh, okay. So this is diffusion. It's doing this beca- out of its, because the, it's, this is what nature wants it to do. It leaks out. But if you've got too much potassium outside the cell that potassium is less likely to leak, to leak outside. So the positive potassium remains inside. Now, remember the resting membrane potential oh, was yeah. supposed to be positive out, negative in. But point. if the positive potassium stays in, you've changed the resting membrane potential. And for neurons then... It's more excitable. It's more excitable yeah. because it's hitting its threshold. It's like you most of the time, actually. That's just so me right now. I've had too many bananas. I'm too, way too excitable when it comes to this point. And so that means a neuron can fire off really easily. And so one issue with hyperkalemia can be this constant firing. People can have seizures, right? So neuron fire, 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 fire. And anyway, just thought I'd highlight that point. No, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, Thank you. So when we look at the, the ways that potassium can be about out of range, it's in two mechanisms. It's either an external, because as we said, potassium is a, an intracellular, in abundance at least, it's an intracellular ion. So... If you've got problems with either too much intake or not enough excretion... Do you mean intake into the body? Yeah. Okay, not the cell. Not the cell. Okay, yep. That's going to cause... So this is external causes. That's going to cause a problem. Yep. Okay. Or you've got a distribution issue. So this means you're either moving too much potassium into the cell, which would cause a person to become hypokalemic. Yeah. Or you're pulling too much potassium out of the cell into the extracellular space and yeah. that would make hyperkalemia. Mm. So that's, this is now the two categories of derangements of potassium. They're either an external or an internal cause. Yeah, well, you can have hypokalemia yet have too much potassium in the body because it's locked in the cells. Yeah. But because you're measuring... So emia means presence in blood, so extracellular yeah. fluid. So hypokalemia is... oh. I've measured the blood, the potassium levels are low, but all the potassium may be locked in the cell and you've actually, when you look at total body potassium, the levels may be higher than they should be. And so this is why the potassium concentrations are tricky, real tricky. Yeah. They're tricky. All right, so let's start with hyper. Go for it. You don't have to worry about the volumes here, so I don't have to go through that. Oh, That's good. All right, thank you. Okay, so hyper... Kalemia. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of a, a nifty way of remembering this. Yeah, uh, didn't I didn't get very far. Great. Um, but I'm just going to try and start something off. Um, when you <laughs> just don't make <laughs> up one now. <laughs> when you go to the fruit shop, yes. um, to the banana section, what's the average number of bananas per bunch? 
look, I'll say six. Five. Is that true or you just made that up? Well, the reason why I say five is because basically <laughs> anything above five. So people just have to now just <laughs> remember that the average banana per bunch is five because there's five what? Once you get above five millimoles per litre of potassium in the blood, yep. you got hyperkalemia. Gotcha. Okay. Now, why did I bring bananas in? Well, it's Sinocus. diet. So one cause of hyperkalemia is you ingest too much potassium. Right. And, you know, bananas are just well known. Yeah. Probably, I think you need to eat something like 30 bananas yeah, a day. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And you would definitely not five. But so anyway, you could do it. I just brought yeah. bananas in because it's like it reminds you of too much intake yeah. will cause um, hyperkalemia. All right. But the biggest causes um, outside the cell yeah. that causes hyperkalemia is you're just not excreting it from the kidney. Oh, okay. So anything that impairs excretion at the kidney would cause hyperkalemia or could cause hyperkalemia. So some examples would be a person's got renal failure. So yep. they're just not Those urinating just anything out. Properly. Um, they're not producing aldosterone because remember aldosterone um, oh, secretes, secretes um, potassium. Yeah, so let's just... Something we didn't say to people was that when aldosterone gets released, and I don't think we said aldosterone gets released from the... Kidneys from actually the the uh, say that again. Sorry, where does it get released from? Aldosterone gets released from the adrenal gland on 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 the kidneys kidneys is what I was saying. (laughs) Um, Glomerulosa zone zona glomerulosa Um, in response to the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Angiotensin two. Angiotensin two is the direct trigger for it. Aldosterone travels to the distal convoluted tubules and collecting ducts reabsorbs sodium into the body but has to exchange it for either potassium or hydrogen ions. So if you've got too much aldosterone... Which we spoke about in the sodium issues. Yes. Mm -hmm. So hyperaldosteronism or maybe part of Cushing's, you can pee out too much potassium and become hypokalemic. Or if you don't have enough aldosterone, which is what you were just talking about, the... Yeah, you, the, you, you hold start on to, to accumulate too much potassium. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and if you were, you. if a patient was to be taken a, a particular type of diuretic, a potassium sparing diuretic, yes. that could yes. hold on to too much potassium. Yes, so sparing it from being peed out. So this is the external causes of hyperkalemia. Potassium sparing ones, aldost- uh, aldosterone antagonists. No, I think it's spirolactone. Okay. Um, but, I, but correct me on that. Uh, now we go to the internal causes. So this is something that causes the cell. Because remember, cells are pools of potassium. Okay? Yep. So if you cause the pool... Yeah, spirolactone is an antagonist of aldosterone. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I thought so. Because, We're both right. Because it acts... On the, well, that's true. Because <laughs> it acts at the distal convoluted tubule and with the sodium-potassium exchange. Okay. Hence why... Because remember I said, and people may have forgotten or didn't listen because I understand that... I wouldn't have listened to me either. I said that when we talk about the sodium potassium ATPase pump, its role at the distal convoluted tubule is to throw sodium out potassium in so that you've got the concentration gradient and sodium gets reabsorbed by itself at the distal convoluted tubule. I, I said with the other parts of the nephron, glucose and amino acids can go with it, potassium can go with it, it can be swapped for... You know, uh, hydrogen ions. It can be absorbed. It can be reabsorbed with potassium and chloride. But I said at the distal convoluted tubule, sodium gets reabsorbed by itself, and that's via aldosterone, and therefore, and gets and can swap with potassium, and therefore that antagonist stops sodium, pees out 
but the potassium stays in the body. Yeah. Because okay. you're not exchanging sodium for yeah. potassium. Yep. Yep. Okay. Anyway, sorry, but that's spirolactone. That's the potassium sparing diuretic. All right, so now the internal causes. So this is um, hyperkalemia that's caused by a shift from the cell into the extracellular space. Right. So your cells are pools of potassium. and Floating in a sea of salt. And something is causing the pools to rupture or have a change. All right, what's going on? So the first, probably the first one everyone should know is acidosis. So if you were to have a metabolic acidosis, you have a lot of hydrogen ions floating around your extracellular space. Yep. These don't want to stay here because you're going to get... Um, Issues. <laughs> like uh, denaturing and so forth like that. Yep. So the hydrogen goes, you know what, I can go, I'll bugger off into the cells yep. and I'll jump into the cells. But that's a positive charge. It mm. needs to balance it out. So what comes out? Positive potassium. So potassium goes out. So now you start to get potassium building up in the extracellular space. So metabolic acidosis can also correlate with hyperkalemia. Yes. And that, right. and that would be in early states of DKA. So diabetes ketoacidosis. All right. They, in the early cases, early stages, they may get hyperkalemia. But what else goes with DKA? So this is just important to know. No insulin. Yep. But you also start to, because you've got a whole lot of glucose building up. Yeah. What does glucose cause at the kidney? Uh, Diuresis. Yeah. And so now you pee out heaps of your potassium because you've got a lot more potassium. Gotcha. So then later DKAs. But can I just say the reason why, because people may or may not know, but in diabetic ketoacidosis is a type 1 diabetic, not get, they're not producing no any insulin, insulin at, at all. Which actually so, becomes important in a second. So they take in normal amounts of carbohydrates, which gets broken down to glucose, but your body can't absorb it yeah. at the muscle tissues and other tissues, for example. And so it gets peed out, but the body goes, where's all this glucose? And it's just going in and peeing out, going in and peeing out. And so your body then makes ketones, but at the same time of making ketones, it makes an acid. So you become acidic. That acid needs to go somewhere. So it jumps into the cells to sort with potassium. So you have lots going on. Glucosuria, polyuria. You are probably thirsty because yeah, you, you, look, peeing, so you get, you you get hypervolemia. So hypervolemia. You start off with hyperkalemia, and that because you're losing that all your potassium through your pee. And hypovolemia. Then you, then you become hypokalemic because you just peeing it all out so that's, oh, it's a, wow. that's why th- these people will die so they start not, hyperkalemic yeah. because it shunts out shunts. of their cells but then that gets filtered with the blood plasma and gets peed out that's right and so then they become hypokalemic so they've got potassium issues glucose issues hydrogen ion balance In- insulin. issues insulin issues yeah. and, and you say fluid issues and fluid yeah. issues that's why it's very had to be very tightly managed at ED absolutely absolutely okay um, other causes of the Hydrogen, sorry, the potassium did come out of the cell. Well, mm. if cells just explode everywhere. Oh, of course. So that must happen all the time. This is called cell lysis. So yep. what are the, some of the causes that cells will die in abundance everywhere? Uh, if there is significant volume changes inside and outside the cell, it can burst the cell. Yeah, but it's pretty well regulated like we saw in the sodium. Okay. Um, 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 lysis can occur due to what? Rhabdo. Oh, rhabdomyolysis. Yeah. Okay, it's in the crush angle. injuries. Yeah, which is what causes rhabdomyolysis, yeah. but also can directly crush the cells. Burns. Burns, Mr. Burns. Yes. And tumor lysis. So if a person was going through chemotherapy and they just get a lot of yeah, cells yeah, yeah, die of quickly, all this potassium is going everywhere. Mm. Burns okay. are actually really important when it comes to fluid balance. I'm sorry, everyone, if you can hear. That's my pet um, That's black like, cockatoo. Cock- 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 no, he's psychotic. How loud is he? 
Okay. A um, few other things quickly. Um, I think you mentioned this earlier. If you get water shift in, mm. other solutes go with it. So for yeah. some reason, um, when you get movement from uh, water going from intracellular to extracellular, potassium usually goes for the ride. Yeah. And so that can also cause hyperkalemia anytime you get in water shift from intra to extra. Yeah. And then the final one, which is interesting, um, anything that may affect the potassium, sodium potassium pump. Yes, absolutely. So, so that would be um, beta blockers. Yeah. Because you're blocking that pump. And yep. so that would affect the uh, potassium getting yeah, pushed back I don't back think in. people realise um, that you can actually increase the amount of sodium potassium pumps through sympathetic stimulation. So it can actually trigger transcription up-regulating. of upregulation of, of sodium potassium pumps. Amazing. Mm. All right. I'm just going to say a couple of things that you would expect to see with a patient with hyperkalemia. All right. The hyper. Hyper. Yep. As you said, it's going to affect your resting membrane retention. Mm. So it's getting closer to threshold. Yeah. That means all the excitable tissues become a lot more excited. Yeah. That means you're going to get uh, cramping. Yeah. Uh, so skeletal, muscles contract easier. But interestingly, muscle weakness. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's because once it's contracted, it's hard to be reset. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think the only real important thing you need to know on an ECG is you get these big peaked T waves. Okay. Okay. There's other changes like sinusoidal waves and short QTs, but I think just if you know that the, the T wave is peaked, that's yeah. a good one for hyperkalemia. Well, I think people should realize that potassium movement is the resetting of the heart, which is the T wave. And therefore, if you've got potassium issues, yeah, then obviously gonna, the T wave is going to look that's weird. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. Okay, the next one is hypokalemia. So this is low potassium. Yeah. Okay, so it's pretty much the opposite. So again, you have your external and internal causes. Mm -hmm. So instead of you're not getting enough, uh, sorry, with the external causes of hyper, you're holding on to too much. In this case, you're excreting too much potassium. So anything that can cause too much diarrhea. Did we already talk about this? We already spoke, aren't we going through symptoms of hypokalemia? No. We already spoke about the causes of hypokalemia. No, that was hyperkalemia. Now we're doing hypo. All right, I thought we spoke about it. No. All right. That was hyper. Sorry. Um, So hypo, I don't think we really need to go through um, the external causes because they're the exact opposite of the hyper. Okay? You're looking at me funny. Go on. Okay. No, because I was convinced we already went through it, but I think we've just been sitting here talking about so many hypers and hypos. Yeah, that's what I mean. It gets difficult after a while. Um, f- just with the uh, internal causes of hypokalemia, low potassium, this is where too much potassium gets pulled into the cell. So this is just a greater movement of potassium in the cell, staining the cell. So this would be things like um, a high pH. So now... Um, Hydrogen gets pulled out of the cell, which it gets oh, it's exchanged. More basic. So there's yeah. less hydrogen outside the cell, so hydrogen gets pulled yep. out. Oh, yep. okay. So wherever hydrogen goes, you can just assume potassium's doing the opposite. Yeah. Right. Um, and then you have too much insulin, so insulemia, okay. hyperinsulemia. So this would be in probably probably people either in a overdosing in with the it? early stages of management um, type two diabetes mm. when the the pancreas is trying to compensate for oh yeah yeah but, out but too much. i think the one you gave as an example it's the most common where a type 1 diabetic just gives too Give much insulin too much. yeah that means the insulin is driving the pump the pump becomes more efficient it's pulling more potassium into the cell yep. you become hypokalemic 
And it basically does, uh, it makes the, the excitable cells more negative. Yeah. So that means it's harder to hit threshold. Yes. So you'll get things like constipation, cramping. So um, in terms of the ECG, you get a U wave instead of the spike T wave and you get a prolonged QT interval. Okay. Okay. That's potassium. I, I think we're hour 40. Do you want to? Yeah, look, I, I don't think there's a, a, a huge amount to go through with. I think we've got to finish it. We've got to okay. finish it. Look, people can stop and start a podcast. Okay. Yep. Now we're going about, we're going to talk about calcium and then magnesium and then we're done. Okay. So let's, if we first start with calcium, what do you need to understand about calcium? Well, know that 98% of calcium is stored in the bone and it's there to maintain structural integrity. But calcium also plays an important role as an intracellular secondary messenger. It plays an important role for muscle contraction, neuromuscular transmission, cell division and movement, and also various oxidative pathways. So we need calcium ions and blood clotting. Yes, very good when it comes to platelets. So calcium as an ion is Ca2+, and it sits outside the cell. Not in quantities as high as sodium, but still sits predominantly outside the cell. And made, Matt made a great point, is that it's the key mediator for cell death pathways if too much of it does jump into a cell or gets released into the cell. Like Matt said, it's important when it comes to blood coagulation pathways because what happens is the coag- when you've got a cut in your skin, you've got platelets that start to block it up And then the coagulation factors, they need to bind to the platelets and they do it via calcium. Calcium is basically the lasso that holds the coagulation factors and the platelets together so that you can really start to form, you know, fibrin fibrin to sort of really uh, block up that area that's been cut. Um, And vitamin D and parathyroid hormone, they are what control uh, calcium uh, serum levels where parathyroid hormone, so you've got your thyroid gland, which is hugging your trachea, but on the back of it, you've got a couple of little spotted regions. Four of them, not, not a couple. Four, four of them on average, but you can have six. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can have a whole range of You can of have a bunch. Um, they release parathyroid hormone, yeah. and they, they get released... In, real, in, in response to what? Low calcium okay. levels in the blood. And so what they will do is they'll stimulate these little macrophage-like cells called osteoclasts, and they start to break bone down and they release calcium into the bloodstream. Um, they also stimulate, uh, parathyroid hormone also stimulates calcium reabsorption at the distal convoluted tubule. Yep. And also vitamin D synthesis is stimulated at the kidneys. Yep. We don't need to talk about or all activated. that. Or activated. Or at least activated. And vitamin D also stimulates osteoclasts, but also calcium reabsorption at the gut. Which is interesting well. because if you were to take um, let's say the average amount of calcium in your diet, a thousand milligrams per day, 90% of that is pooed out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's similar to magnesium as well. Most of that's. So you kind of think excreted. of it like, well, that allows now a potential to occur that if you could um, increase the absorption sites in your gut, you have more opportunity to, to increase mm. absorption. So this is what vitamin D does. It yes. goes to your gut, makes more calcium channel, and that increases more, less goes in your poo, more gets pulled across into the blood. Yes. So there's a high potential there, which I sh- thought was quite interesting. And, and so, y- and your bone is the other pool that you have capacity. Oh yeah, to huge draw amounts. Upon. Same with phosphate. So you can think about. So phosphate is another ion. We're not going to talk about it today, but basically, 
when osteoclasts are stimulated, both calcium and phosphate is going to be released. Right? But I think interestingly with uh, PTH, so parathyroid it its early state isn't to activate osteoclasts, it's just to slow down osteoblasts. So my understanding is if you were to just to release PTH in response to low calcium over a number of short days, it would really just tell the bone builders to just say, settle down, down boys, yeah. just give us a bit of calcium instead of hogging it all. But then if you release PTH for days, weeks, months, then it actually starts telling mm. the osteoclasts. They're the breakers yeah. and they start breaking down bone. Yeah. Osteoclasts crush, osteoblasts build. Yeah. Oh, that's how I remember it. And so we also spoke about, you know, Calcium, we've spoken about its important role in muscle contraction. If calcium's in the, in a muscle cell, the muscle cell will contract. Therefore, concentrations will change the All right, I've got a good one for, for high amounts of calcium. All right, one second. Okay. Last, last point is that when it comes to neurons, what is the role of calcium? So you need to think about this. Remember that for a neuron to fire off, something positive needs to go from outside in and enough of it needs to go. Now, usually it's sodium, but it doesn't have to be can be calcium. So if you throw enough calcium inside of a neuron, it can trigger it to send an electrical chemical signal. Okay. And so calcium can actually be a, a regulator of that. But in addition to that, like Matt said earlier when we spoke about the action potential down a neuron, the signal that's sent, at the very end of the neuron, calcium is actually triggered to enter the neuron to release the neurotransmitters. So without calcium, neurotransmitters aren't released. So that's another important point. All right, so let's talk about hyper-hypos. The only thing I'm going to say for hyper um, is stones, bones, groans, and psychiatric overtones. Okay, I thought it was moans, but that's part of the psychiatric overtones. Yeah. moans is potentially insensitive. And thrones, thrones. Kings? Uh, What's the throne that you may visit? Oh, the toilet. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's well, all. I'm gonna, that's all I'm going to. I'll explain it. But that's all I'm going <laughs> to go through with hyper. So if you have hypercalcemia, yeah, this is anything above uh, 5.2 millimoles per liter in yep. your in your blood. Um, you could develop stones, bones, groans, thrones, and psychiatric, psychiatric overtones. Overtones. Okay, so stones. Basically, what happens here is your kidneys trying to get rid of excessive amounts. I think the calcium also has an effect in ADH, I think somewhere in that space, which causes greater amounts of dehydration. So you have less um, filtration through your kidney and that causes the calcium to, fall, to what's the word, um, pre- precipitate yeah. and start to, I think it calcium oxalate. And that starts to form stones. Yes. So that's the stone Calculi. part. Bones goes to what we're saying with PTH. Basically, it's uh, telling the clast uh, to turn on, and you start to break down bone and Aren't get you bone about pain. Hyper, yeah, calcium. But that's probably caused by a PTH, which is pulling it from bone. So it's probably more to do with the cause of it rather than just but the... Wouldn't the yeah, but hypercalcemia would inhibit PTH. Yeah, but I think. The bone part is what's it, causing hypercalcemia. That's, right, yeah, that's, right, yeah. that's right. That's right. So if you have a tumor, that's yeah, that's a tumor in the bone or a tumor in the parathyroid or a tumor like a, a small cell carcinoma in the lung, yeah. it actually releases a hormone like PTH. 
that can trigger osteoclast activity and, and break bone down. That's and right. Too much calcium. That's right. Yep. Um, groans and thrones go together, so it causes constipation. So right. you sit at the toilet, the throne, for a long time and yep. you groan. Okay. And the yep. last one is the psychiatric overtones, so anxiety and even going to loss of consciousness or altered level of consciousness. Yep. Okay. I think that's, I mean, some of the causes, too much, as we said, uh, tumors, too much vitamin D. Um, sometimes the use of a particular diuretic, the thiazide diuretic, which holds onto the calcium, that could cause it. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to hypo, obviously not enough calcium, and this could be not enough in the diet, not yep. enough vitamin D. Yep. Um, uh, and you, or, what or, else? Or you have increased amounts of excretion, so you have kidney yes. failure. Um, or interestingly, um, uh, if you were to have those same kind of tissue injuries that we saw with the potassium, so if you were to have rhabdo or burns, what would happen? Well, um, what's an, this, this will test you. What's another ion that's in high concentration inside the cells? Uh, bicarbonate. Um, I'm not sure if that's more. I can't remember. Anyway, phosphate. Phosphate. So phosphate is just like we saw with potassium, gets flooded into the extracellular. What does phosphate do with calcium? Uh, it binds with it yeah. and f- forms solid stuff. So it's inorganics. Yeah. So it starts of, so that you flood your body with phosphate because of the cell damage. So that picks up all the calcium, and then you become hypocalcemic. Okay. Or, ca- or hi- hypocalcemia. Interestingly, in this case... Bicarbonate's mainly outside the cell, just yeah, that I'd say. <laughs> uh, interestingly, with um, hypocalcemia, because that's going to... Um, it, calcium has a, an effect on sodium channels to stabilise sodium channels. So when you're in a low calcium state, the excitable tissue becomes more excitable. So you actually move towards tetany mm. or twitching mm. or contractions and there's some cases where you can get it in your face there's a particular sign if you whack i shouldn't say the whack but if you bang <laughs> okay touch. cool just use a synonym of whack <laughs> the um facial nerve you can get like uh tetany of the muscles of okay. facial expression yeah or you can get it in your arm if you do like a blood pressure cuff and then it kind of activates the probably the median nerve or something and causes your anyway cool that's calcium all right magnesium uh, magnesium actually does a bunch of stuff. So it's, it modulates ion channel activity. Um, it's essential part of ATP production and hydrolysis. So ATP, the energy currency of the body, can't do its thing unless magnesium is present. Uh, it's a cofactor in like a hundred different ty- or hundreds of different types of enzymatic reactions in the body. So it's unsurprising that insufficient magnesium intake has been associated with a whole bunch of metabolic disorders, including like insulin resistance, hypertension, arterial stiffness, and ischemic heart disease as well. So of all the magnesium in the body, 50% is in the bone, mm-hmm. 20% is in the muscle, and the rest is distributed. In muscle. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the rest is distributed in liver, heart, and other various tissues. Only 1% of total body magnesium is outside the cell. Yeah, in yeah. The extracellular so fluid. in the muscle, that's in the muscle cells? I guess it would have to be if it's 1%. Yeah. And of the 1% in the extracellular fluid, 25% of that 1%, so a quarter of whatever's out in the fluid is bound to proteins. Yeah. Uh, like 60, albumin. Yeah, 65% mm. is ionized, so is MG2+, and 10% is complex to things like phosphates and citrates and other various ions. 
Now, magnesium plays probably three important roles. It does a bunch of stuff, but three important roles. First of which, energy metabolism. So magnesium is required for ATP, phosphorylation reactions. So, you know, it interacts with the outer two phosphates of ATP. Um, Intracellular magnesium deficiency impairs enzymes using those high energy phosphates. So it impairs things like glucose metabolism. So it seems that magnesium is the new um, uh, electrolyte that everyone wants to use. Well, out of all the systematic reviews on whether somebody should, whether an athlete should supplement with electrolytes, the strongest evidence, and it's still pretty poor, is to supplement with magnesium. Out of all of them? Out of all of them. Okay. Yep. I mean, sodium, sure, but we don't know how much concentration, and it really depends on how much is lost. But magnesium seemed an iron, Fe2+, plus, yep. um, seems to be the strongest evidence for supplementation. Right. Um, so apart from it being used in ATP-based reactions, so which is needed for like every single metabolic pathway you need to either produce or use ATP, therefore magnesium is required as a cofactor, it's a cofactor in every step of DNA, RNA, transcription and translation. So you can't make more DNA, you can't make proteins, you can't do it you know, all that type of stuff without magnesium. And it's important in ion transport. So it actually helps that sodium-potassium pump. Right. Therefore, it helps maintain resting membrane potentials. And also, interestingly, it can hinder the influx of calcium into cells. It can, like, so for example, magnesium is an antagonist to NMDA receptors, so glutamate receptors. So Remember, neurons have different receptors for different neurotransmitters. Some neurotransmitters you can generalize as excitable and some as inhibitory. Glutamate is excitable, which means when glutamate binds to its receptor, which is an NMDA receptor, positive ions jump into the neuron because it depolarizes it in the signal sent. And that positive ion is usually calcium for glutamate. Magnesium inhibits glutamate from binding to its receptor. So it stops calcium from going in. So it reduces calcium entry and therefore reduces neurotransmitter release. So it can modulate muscle contraction, cardiac pacemaker cells, action potentials, also can inhibit or modulate pain signals. And magnesium has been given to people post-operatively to mediate pain. Right. Um, It can reduce acetylcholine release because of that exact term so therefore does it help with muscle cramps the answer is no so people taking magnesium for muscle cramps doesn't seem to work what about even though the theory is there yeah right what because i think some people take it for like um restless leg syndrome right yes and it has been especially like pregnant mothers for example yeah. and there are still obstetricians gynecologists who state to take it um and i think the evident that there is some evidence for pregnant mothers but i think generally speaking for muscle cramps the evidence is pretty crappy um, so I think the evidence is pretty poor for okay. restless legs as so well so when you spoke about um, the meta-analysis or the systematic reviews and they said there might be some yeah what that was, was for athletes that was for but, endurance but athletes specifically not for cramping post cramping no okay it was about performance oh really yeah okay. about would supplementation with particular ions improve performance in endurance athletes so very specific group of athletes for okay. a very specific purpose um the other interesting thing is because magnesium antagonizes calcium influx, it obviously changes contraction of muscles. Yeah, yeah. Hence why the whole muscle cramp and magnesium supplementation. But here's the thing. Arterial stiffness. 
which you know predisposes on to hypertension mm. and damage down the track. Magnesium supplementation long term improves arterial stiffness. The most recent meta-analyses last three demonstrated that in very high-ranking journals. That magnesium, but you obviously need to see a GP uh, or a cardiologist to talk about the doses. You don't just go, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take magnesium supplements because I want to avoid this. Otherwise, I'm a healthy individual. And end up on chubby emu. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so there you go. That's, that's basically... I think it also, in terms of calcium, it also, I think it also enhances... Um, PTH release and the, oh, yeah. and the way that um, that interacts with the calcium um, homeostasis mm. as well. So that's magnesium seems to have a whole lot of peripheral benefits, doesn't it? Magnesium is a super cool, super interesting iron that nobody talks about. But you know what, Matty? This is the longest podcast yeah. we've done. And I've got nothing about hypermagnesia, mag- magnesiumemia, magnesium. Well, it seems to go, all its effects, if you've got too much or too little seems to go pretty hand, much hand in hand with what calcium does. So, yeah. you know, if you get hyper, you start to get a decreased. So this is hypermagnesium. You st- you seem to get changes in um, the tissue becomes less excitable. So you get slow reflexes. Yeah. You get bradycardia. antagonizing calcium, yeah. yeah. And then the exact opposite happens with hypo. With hypermagnesium, it seems to make tissue more excitable and you get the same kind of effects that we saw with hypocalcemia which is tetany um, changes in the ecg i think tachycardia opposed to hyper causes bradycardia um yeah i mean really the the causes of hyper and hyper just come down to either too much intake or you have renal issues to excrete and vice versa into hypo and i think that's the main take-home points well, this is probably the longest podcast we've ever done. Two hours. Well, I hope if you're still listening, um, you know, please follow us on social media. It's usually follow- not this long. No. Uh, look, I think they know. I think it doesn't matter. Podcasts you can stop. That's Joe true. Rogan, which I'm sure we are on par with in regards to popularity. Oh, Maybe not with the... Uh, academic rigor. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, he does four-hour podcasts. People love it. So that's a great thing. You don't have to rush a podcast. Anyway, you can contact me on social media, Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Mike Todorovic, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. Matt has nothing. He's got Twitter. He doesn't use it. But you can send us an email at, uh, no, it's gubiosciences at gmail.com. You can select a topic, ask us, correct us, correct Matt. He's usually wrong. Mm, That's true. Um, or you can, or I think you should also go on both Spotify and iTunes and give us five-star rating. And again, if you don't want to give us a five-star rating, don't give us a rating at all. Uh, four stars ain't as good as five. And <laughs> definitely three, two, and one, uh, not either. So if you don't like our podcast, just move on. That's all good. But hopefully we've helped you. And uh, Matt, thank you. No problem. No problem. I hope to see you again soon in the granny flat. Yes, the Nana House. <laughs> See ya. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.